Hi guys, this is April. Welcome to episode two of Murders and Missing. We are going to continue today with the murder of James Jordan. Yes, folks, you guessed it, Michael Jordan's dad. Um, you will notice that I have a pen in my hand. <laughs> it has been a crazy week. And to tell you the truth, I have had some trouble coming up with exactly where I wanted to land with you today. Um, I can confirm that I am in touch with Daniel Green himself um, and that we have spoken several times concerning this matter. Um, and with that being said, there's a lot that I have to say. There's a lot of people that I've talked to this week. There's, and namely Daniel, who has been such a refreshing delight to talk to. Um, a very kind and sweet person. Um, hold on just a second and I will show you. So, thank goodness, blurred it out a little bit, um, is my entire notebook so far. From just this week. Yes, as I said, folks, it's been a busy week. But as we last left, we were on the interrogations. And so here's some stuff that I have actually just learned prior to a phone call um, right before this. And with that, Larry came to Daniel. Now, this is before they got called and all of that stuff. So Larry came to Daniel and said that he had to run some drugs to New York. His friend bailed out on him and he asked Daniel, would he go? So Daniel said, okay, he would go. Daniel got to New Bern, South Carolina or excuse me, newborn North Carolina, New Bern, North Carolina. And he said, no, Daniel, I'm not doing this. You know, this is the $40,000 Lexus. Uh, yeah, I'm not doing that. So they turned around, they came home. So here is what we know to be true. We know that Daniel Green in 30 years has never wavered from that interrogation room. You know, the whole thing was that he was looking out for a friend. You know, when they first got arrested, the, the police, which I didn't know this either until today, the police went and they tore Daniel's mom's house apart because you have to remember Daniel and Larry were li living with Daniel's mom. They tore her house apart. They didn't find anything, nothing. So they were done, right? So they go back into the interrogation rooms. And basically, as I said before, it's a deal of who can cut one first. Yeah, the cops really wanted Larry. They did not want Daniel. 
But Daniel would not sell out Larry, which is exactly what that would have been. So with that, they go in and they tell Larry that, hey, Daniel's already said you did it. And Larry immediately starts just blabbering at the mouth. Daniel did it. Daniel did it. Okay. Rehash of last episode. Now, they were best friends since they were kids. And each of them were offered a deal. And basically how that goes is that the first one who takes it wins. And Larry actually took the deal. So he was facing, this is something new I found out this week too, he was actually facing 270 years. Now folks, that is, that's a lot. Um, Before the first degree murder conviction. So he was already gone for a very long time. You know, that would have made anyone scared enough to cut a deal. We have to keep in mind, we're talking about two 18-year-olds here. They, they don't know anything. They don't know to lawyer up. I mean, not like a grown person would. So, um, but I wanted to go back and I wanted to talk about Daniel a little bit. Because during our conversations, I have found out some things that are really, really cool about Daniel. You know, Daniel was a gifted and talented child. He really was. So um, he was always inquisitive, his teacher said. At the age of six, his parents split up. And with them getting a divorce, his mom felt like they needed a fresh start. His father went to prison for possession of marijuana. Um, Yeah, I know. It's crazy. But back then, hey, it was illegal. So, um, but they moved to Philadelphia. And when they got there, he had, Daniel had a stutter. And he began having trouble in school. Um, And he was called a Southern nerd. So at school, I'm sure you can know, you know, at six, that that's a big insult. So even though I am not Southern, I sound Southern. So, and, and people always assume I'm either from Alabama, wherever, that's not the case. I just sound Southern. Uh, but that does not dismiss the fact that I am intelligent. Um, he, by the ninth grade, He had attended 13 different schools. Okay. So in eight years, let's add this up, because in sixth grade, you'd be roughly around the first grade. So in eight school years, he had already been in 13 schools. There is no time to... foster relationships with kids. There's no time to develop the sense of who you are. There's no time to kind of ease on into that school environment that we all want our kids to do. 
So you can imagine how Daniel felt. And with a stutter, that makes it twice as uncomfortable meeting new kids. Um, I am sure that that definitely took a toll on him. Not justifying anything, just giving you a little bit of background, behavioral analysis stuff. So um, he always had the absence of a male figure in his life. Now, I am not saying by far that you need a male figure in your life to turn out successful. But what I am saying is that sometimes a male figure will play a significant role in how you have the ability to stand up for yourself. Do you see where I'm going with this? The interrogation room. Daniel did not know how to stand up for himself. So he witnessed a killing um, of a of the police killing a 13-year-old boy. And that was traumatic to say the least. But then he turns around and his uncle gets killed. So he began carrying a gun. You know, um, and with this, you can imagine at that time, girls gravitated to him. Um, and other guys did not like that at all. You know, an altercation that Daniel had was where he took an axe handle and he actually hit somebody with it, with the blunt end of the axe. So before you go going, I always got a violent history, always got a violent history. Hold up, wait a minute. In court, it was legally found that it was self-defense. So that, um, but here's the interesting part. Because he was a young black male at that time in our criminal justice system, his public defender told him to plead guilty because it was his first offense. And Daniel told them no. Now, if you will notice, there is a behavioral history here. Daniel always is sticking up for himself, but he's also really not causing any kind of trouble. So he was sentenced to six years in prison for the assault with the axe handle. Okay, rightfully so. You don't hit people. I mean, that's you learn that in kindergarten. But nevertheless, he still had to learn that that was part of growing up. You know, you take actions. Sometimes you sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. If they're bad, then you have to pay the consequences. Then Daniel went, no problem. So, um, but anyway, Larry was the only one to contact him in prison. Now, where we're fixing to go is I am going to explain to you why, because I'm sure so many of you are like me, where you are saying, why on God's green earth would this man 
you know, stick up for Larry Demery. You know, if he knew Larry Demery did it. Well, there's lots of reasons why. Um, you, you know, as far as Larry was the only one that came to contact him in prison. He wrote him. And now this was a conversation that I had with Daniel this week. You know, he said, Larry kept in touch with me. Larry sent me pictures, you know, and, and I told Daniel that the personal things that we discussed, we would not discuss on here until he gave me permission to do so. Um, I do not think that history of something like that is too personal to share. So I'm not going to share much more than that, other than he did keep in contact with him. Larry was a good friend to him for those six years while he was in there. So in turn, Daniel thought, hey, I, I need to be a good friend. You know, friends look out for friends. So... When they were in the interrogation room, they were trying to paint the vision. Now, these cops had already developed tunnel vision, right? So they go back while these two kids are in the interrogation room separate now. They've been there for hours. They go back and they search the house a second time. Now, in these crime scene photographs, the shot back that we were talking about is literally sitting in the middle of the floor. Now, if you have torn this woman's house apart, Daniel's mom's house, if you've torn this woman's house apart, you mean to tell me you would not lift and look into the contents of the shot back? That's either A, really, really bad police work, or B, that that 38 caliber was not there. So either or, we don't know. It, it could be the first. But anyway, just goes to show you, there, there's a lot of weird things that go. And folks, I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, we are going to encounter a lot of weird things and things that will leave you scratching your head. Um, it is, this is a case unlike anything I've ever seen. I have never been on YouTube in my life, but that's why we're on here today. This is strictly a case of wrongfully convicted. So, the, um, you know... The prosecution went in there and they were of the, not the prosecution, but the cops were in there and they were like, you know, these guys have chosen violence and, and, you know, da, 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 da. It, it was just, they were so tunnel visioned into Larry and Daniel. Now, in the first interrogation, Daniel did lie. He did. Hey, he's scared. He's 18. Like, really? Who wouldn't? The reason he lied was because he had been in prison for six years. Um, he didn't trust law enforcement at all. Um, and he was loyal to Larry, um, who was best friends since the third grade. 
And that's straight from Daniel. They were best friends since the third grade. So if you hear something clicking, it's my pen. But anyway, Daniel just could not will himself to throw Larry under the bus. I mean, as hard as they tried, it did not matter. Daniel was not going to do it. Larry, on the other hand, folded like a cheap suit the minute they threatened him. They went in there and they basically said, son, you're facing 270 years. That was for the robbery, uh, attempted robbery, kidnapping, and another charge. Anyway, but he was facing 270 years without James Jordan's murder. So, and they were like, if you go ahead and you testify against Daniel, we'll cut it down to 40. Now, Larry goes, okay, but, but the little guys go, you're just going to have to take our word on it that this is what's going to happen. So what happens? Larry basically goes ahead and says, it was Daniel. Daniel shot him. We went up on the road. Um, you know, that when Daniel shot him, Daniel pulled him to the passenger seat. James Jordan pulled him to the passenger seat of the Lexus. Now, forensically speaking, you cannot move a 180-pound person that is incapacitated over a console into a driver's seat by yourself very easily. There would be blood everywhere. There would be all your DNA everywhere, a.k.a. Daniel's DNA everywhere. And then Larry Demery, who says he climbed, they had to scoop the seat up for Larry to get in the back. Larry Demery's DNA would have been in the car. Well, guess what, folks? There's no DNA. There's no blood. So, they immediately arrest these two men. Let me tell you, this is a case of who can solve Michael Jordan's dad's murder, the famous NBA star, the quickest. This is not fair. It's not equitable. It's not anything. This is, we really don't care. We need a conviction and we're going to get one one way or another. So I will tell you, there are, and we are just finished with the interrogation part. There are a lot of things that come into question. And I'm looking at my notes, if you're wondering, because I actually am going to link a great person that I have been in contact with, and he has been fighting for 20 years um, to free Daniel, him and his brother. Um, and his name's Rick Persons. I don't think he would mind me mentioning. So, but anyway, so on August 10th, there's a book, right? And it's called In My Family Shadow. Y'all, if we're going to be doing this, let's everybody get the book. We can have a book club. It is written by Michael Jordan's sister. 
So she is quoted in the book as saying that at her father's funeral, her mother comes up to her and says that there is a paternity suit out of the state of Illinois, city of Chicago, for James Jordan. And that she was glad the mom, Mrs. Jordan, was glad that the body had been cremated. And this is all in the book. This is not hearsay. This is from Michael Jordan's sister, folks. This is not me. Um, She claims that because... She was glad his body was found in McCall, South Carolina, because that was the only state where you could still cremate a body without claiming it. Okay, folks, that's really weird. Now, this is coming from Michael Jordan's sister. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. In her book, she mentions that immediately after the funeral, there was a letter sent to this woman in Chicago that was basically like, well, good luck now proving DNA. Well, back then, we didn't have Ancestry.com. We didn't have 23andMe. We didn't have all of these sites. Um, We didn't have the capability of testing brothers and sisters to see if there's a biological match. So anyway, just just another weird thing with this case, weird thing, not that that had anything to do or any reason for James Jordan to be murdered. It didn't. It's just weird that it said that in this book, however, also now you will find there are lots of rabbit holes in this story. Excuse me. It's not a story. It's, it's an actual case. It has consumed me for over a year. So in this case, on August 10th, the sister reports that she got a phone call from Mrs. Jordan saying that her dad was in Hilton Head. Now, if you remember back, James Jordan, according to Larry Demery, was shot on July 23rd. Now, let's just pause there for a minute because here's my problem with this case. My problem with this case is that there's nobody yet as of July 23rd. There's no car. There's no gun casings. There's no blood. There's no footprints. Now let's fast track all the way to August 13th when his body was found. Now the car was found in Cumberland County, Fayetteville, North Carolina on the 11th. But there's still none of this stuff found. Okay, guys, on this note, we are going to end until the next episode. I have a feeling we are going to stretch this out for a few more than three. 
there has been a lot of information that just has come to my attention. And frankly, it is just too important not to tell you the whole story. That's why I'm here. Until next time, my name's April. Thank you for watching Murders and Missing. Have a great day.